complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I want to kick off with the cocktail, obviously, Mm -hmm. because it's so fundamental to what we're doing. I wish that you could be here with us, Henning, in person to enjoy this delightful cocktail. But alas, Lagavulin 16 is sure to suffice. The sweet nectars of heaven have graced me with a bottle of Lagavulin 16. Petey goodness. It's like drinking the most delicious campfire on earth. <laughs> I agree with that. Oh, absolutely. But it's, uh, we are in a similar realm of liquor tonight. We're doing a cocktail made with whiskey. We're kicking off episode one with an old fashioned. It truly is an American classic. I think it's probably the most recognized cocktail. Tom Collins might be up there as well. If you say old fashioned, pretty much anyone is aware that it's a cocktail, which says a lot because so many people are not kind of in that cocktail world. Right. People order it when they don't know what to order. Exactly. To be yeah. honest, it's the but, it's the cocktail I order. I have never even heard of a Tom Collins. <laughs> okay, well, we will get there eventually. It's it's on the list of cocktails to come. Of course it is. But the Old Fashioned is a fairly old drink, even though its name doesn't necessarily have to do with that. Uh, but it was first invented in bourbon country sometime in the 1880s, the late 1800s, to a bartender that worked at the Pendennis Club in Louisville, Kentucky. I'd like to think that, like many bartenders, he started to get bored of the same mundane orders that everyone seemed to you know, bring up to his counter. And innovation... And exploration is something that I think bartenders are really fond of. So I'd like to think that he was just kind of bored of the same thing and he really wanted to experiment a little bit. So he uh, decided to come up with this drink to present to a local distiller, uh, Colonel James E. Pepper. And he went to work and he, he wanted to make something similar or in the same vein of what was considered a whiskey cocktail at that point. But... Whiskey cocktails were this kind of bastardized monstrosity of what a cocktail was, you know, originally meant to be. Now, remember, this is the 1880s, close to 100 years before that, the first mention of what a cocktail is um, was presented. And it was simply spirits, sugar, water, and bitters. Very, very simple. At this point that this bartender decided to come up with the old-fashioned, the whiskey cocktail had, like I said, kind of ambassadized. It was muddled cherry, oranges, sugar, sometimes pineapple, and then they would kind of suspend that mixture in uh, either absinthe or uh, cacao. And then they would add whiskey and then garnish it with all this fruit. So it was this crazy sweet fruity elixir and i think he kind of wanted to strip that back and find some elegance and kind of take inspiration from the original idea of what a cocktail was so sure enough he came up with what we would consider now an old-fashioned presented it to 
Mr. Pepper, and Mr. Pepper loved it. Being a distiller, he was constantly bringing his product all over the country, so he introduced it to New York, and pretty much everywhere he went, he was highlighting this drink. Now, even though it did kind of start to get some recognition, it never really got a ton of popularity until after World War II. That being said, it's actually really impressive that it ended up making it through Prohibition and the years before and after. I mean, a lot of the old cocktails are even today kind of being discovered. The histories are being uncovered. So that is something that we should be happy about. I didn't want to highlight the old fashioned for episode one because of how renowned it is or what a classic it is. I wanted to highlight it because I think it highlights a really beautiful and elegant philosophy of less but better. Uh, Dieter Ramsism, if I can refer to it as that. Ooh. <laughs> um, are you familiar with him? No, I'm not, okay. but it sounds great. <laughs> he is like my absolute favorite designer. He was an industrial designer, um, really into minimalism. He has 10, like a list of 10 essentials for design. They're beautiful. His furniture Super is what cool. I'm very fond of, but my point is that complexity and quality aren't simply some sort of byproduct of extravagance. There's something to be said about austere beauty mm. as something to be in wonder of mm. and to strive for. And I think that the original old fashioned illustrates that. And so the drink we have before us tonight is two ounces of bourbon, a quarter ounce of simple syrup, three dashes of aromatic bitters, and a thick lemon peel to garnish it off. Now, if you order an old-fashioned today in the bar, you're probably going to get a cherry and an orange with it, which is great and delicious. But the drink that I'm presenting is in its most historical, pure form. The old-fashioned is a great drink because of how simple it is and the versatility that it has. So you can take that original idea of a cocktail, you can add a different spirit, add a different sugar to complement your liquor, add a different bitter, and basically create an endless assortment of drinks in the, quote, old-fashioned world. Mm. A great example is last night I made a, a smoked cinnamon apple cocktail. I did bourbon and scotch what? to give a little peatiness. Mm. I lit a cinnamon <laughs> stick on fire and smoked out the glass and then added a little cinnamon apple syrup, and it was kind of a sweet fall rendition of an old-fashioned you can do the same thing with tequila with rum it's it's a beautiful versatile drink but i really wanted to highlight it in its purest form you artisan my goodness i don't even drink whiskey and i'm sucking it down well that's that's what (laughs) i want absolutely i've got my whole i've got a back pocket of whiskey drinks that when people tell me they don't like whiskey drinks i can generally get them to be down with it is this cocktail similar to like the Negroni where sort of the ice actually plays an important role and you're supposed to sip on it slowly and, and as the ice melts, the water dilutes it and that's sort of like a part of the experience. Exactly. So because this is episode one, we can go into a little bit of, of cocktail knowledge and I'll probably continue to do this as, as episodes fly by, but an important part of building a cocktail is the dilution process. Mm. So you get your ingredients into your glass and you add ice and you start stirring. And that is kind of the initial 
dilution process. And there is a very good reason why some cocktails end up being served over ice and some just get served in a chilled glass. Um, something like the old fashioned is strong enough. And then depending on how strong your spirit is, the first dilution is a start. You can suck it down. It's great, but it still has a little bit of a bite to it. So as you start to sip it slowly, it'll dilute more and more and more and then kind of get better and better. Whereas some drinks after the initial stir, they're diluted enough that you can just go ahead and add them to a glass and enjoy. It won't affect the flavor or anything like that. So yeah, there is a reason to have ice for sure. Mm. Do you think the reason some people avoid whiskey drinks is they hear whiskey and they assume they're drinking whiskey like I am tonight? Like I, I, I have a glass with an ounce and a half of Lagavulin 16-year-old scotch whiskey and nothing else is in the glass. Do you think a lot of people <laughs> just assume... I don't like whiskey because they don't drink straight whiskey. I think so. And I think a lot of people think they don't like the taste of whiskey because a lot of whiskey cocktails are what you would call like spirit forward. So they are stronger. Oh, okay. But people that like like a sweet, you know, martini, like a lemon drop, something like that. Vodka is just as strong as whiskey. Mm. Um, it's just, it's got so much sugar and other things in it that it kind of masks that flavor. Yeah. That's why a lot of the cocktails I introduce people to whiskey with are a little bit on the sweeter side. Oh, um, okay. It's a good bridge into the genre. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. And I, you know, not everyone can drink whiskey straight. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> I love it, but it's not for everyone. Oh my gosh. It can be harsh. Yeah. So with the old fashioned, I just got some 120 proof rye the other day. Wow. That's strong. Wow. Like, that is strong. You need to like add a couple drops of water or really take your time with so it. So that's what I was just about to ask about. Talk me through the slight dilution process that some people do when they go and drink a straight whiskey or a straight rye, like a, a dropper of water. What does that do? Yes. So <laughs> before I go on some sort of weird purist rant, <laughs> remember there is no wrong way to drink whiskey. You drink whiskey however you like. However, if you put it over ice, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Thank but you. A lot of Thank whiskeys, you. a lot of whiskeys by themselves, like 120 proof rye or, or, or things like that, can honestly be a little too sharp. They're just not enjoyable. It doesn't mean it's not a good whiskey. Some high end expensive whiskeys can kind of be like that. There's a bunch of different philosophies about adding water and whatnot. And frankly, sometimes it doesn't improve the flavor so you really kind of have to experiment with your whiskeys mm. but the reason why a drop to three drops of water can really help open up a whiskey is because inside whiskey depending on like which barrels it was aged in things like that there are water soluble chemicals that are trapped in it so by adding a few drops of water you actually end up suspending those chemicals and they rise to the surface oh. so then you get a really pungent um nose nose experience right you can smell it mm -hmm. sometimes it'll open up like the smokiness you'll get the huge whiff of intense smoke mm. and then you take a sip maybe a couple sips and then that flavor kind of ends up diluting after that because most of it came to the surface um, but it's a really good way to get a more um, intense or a more wide spectrum of the flavors in the whiskey that you're drinking. 
Talk me through. So there. Talk me through whiskey stones. <laughs> uh, whiskey, whiskey stones. Stone. So some people like their whiskey chilled. I don't know why. Generally, <laughs> the colder something is, it can start to affect how you taste it. You know, there is something to be said that some things do taste better cold than warm. But generally, as something gets colder and colder, it becomes more difficult to be able to decipher like minute differences in flavors. That's why like cheap beer tastes way better when it's ice cold. Right. <laughs> um, oh. Not it's to compare a cocktail because <laughs> I mean a lot of cocktails are chilled and they're cold. Um, but there's enough you, cocktails. You're not trying to get the minute intricacies out of it yeah okay like you would just drinking a, a spirit on its own mm. um so there is a difference there but some people do like it chilled but they don't want to dilute it down with ice um so you can throw your your whiskey stones in the freezer toss them in your glass and then wait what is a whiskey stone it's literally, it's literally just like a, a stone little granite cold. stone you throw them in the freezer okay and then you can put them in your whiskey doesn't dilute it yeah my wife got like me that. a really neato it's like it's presented on this nice wood tray and it's six rather large i'd say probably inch to inch and a half in diameter like cylindrical granite stones and they're all multicolor. and you set the tray in the freezer and then when you go and pour yourself a whiskey you just put the stone at the very bottom of the glass and just pour the whiskey on top it's so neat now, now is that, is that something, something that's, that's an older, an older tradition, tradition or is that something that came about like in the last two decades i've never drank any whiskey with whiskey stone mm-hmm. and so frankly i actually don't know torna's anti-whiskey stone yeah uh, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm neither pro nor against i guess i just i've never it's not anything i've ever looked into i don't know if it can affect the flavor if there's any kind of um maybe mineral i know you can get you can get metallic whiskey you know whiskey cubes that are metallic yeah you can get the plastic ones like a little mini freezer pack mm-hmm. that you can they're like just you know reusable ice cubes which is kind of the same idea but right to me it seems weird it could affect the flavor i don't know in, i'd have to try it. in my experience with the stones to be perfectly honest i i hardly use them it actually depends on the scotch i'm drinking i would i would never stoop to put a whiskey stone in my lagavulin <laughs> uh, never, I would never stoop to such a desecration, but you know, if it's a younger Scotch whiskey and one that's more Highland, uh, maybe like a twelve-year-old Glenlivet, a, a stone in that one is kind of nice because Glenlivet, especially the younger it gets, is a lot sharper and it hits you in the chest right. really hard. It's a lot brighter, right. where it doesn't have a lot of those deep peaty notes uh, and like the smokiness to it. So that is nice to temper with a little cooler temperature, but I'm still not diluting it with water. And then I guess to comment on the flavor, I actually don't rinse or wash my whiskey stones after using them. I just put them straight back in the fridge. So it's almost like I'm, uh, it's like you season a uh, cast iron skillet, right? right? You just okay. season your whiskey well, stones with whiskey. <laughs> so that seems like a good approach. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a fan of it. And like I said, it, it really depends on the whiskey. Uh, for me, it tends to be the younger the whiskey I have on hand, I might I might go for chilling it a little bit, probably going for a little bit of that effect that Torna was describing, like 
it feels and seems more satisfying being a little colder because maybe the complexities are dulled down a little bit. Um, Because, like, we can knock cheap beer for, like, it's only best cold. But, I mean, it's still fantastic when it's cold. Oh, I, I, I don't know about that. What? <laughs> I disagree. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like the first sip of a Coors that's, you know, good and chilled oh. is refreshing. Okay. But the second sip okay. is, it's just, it, the quality of the experience has like mm. a precipitous drop, I think, after the first sip, Let's, after the first crack. It's just. <laughs> is, is Coors your, your beer of choice if, if it's a cheap beer, like in a cooler? Oh no. Okay, so let's go no, around I, let's yeah. name let's name our number one cheap beer, right? Like you go to a bar okay. and you can get a can oh. for like three dollars kind of cheap beer. Mm. Yes. What do you I know mine already? Okay. You go for yours. I don't know. It's mine. a rainier in a bottle. Oh, oh I had a rainier. Rainier. So mm. it, the, it's a dear memory of mine. Maybe not a dear memory, but a great memory of living in Billings. Uh, when I used to work at the field house, um, one of my coworkers, Ava, we would always, after our shift on the weekends, walk over to the Crystal, drink Rainier's from the bottle. Mm. The bartender knew us, so he would give us all of the caps so we could solve the riddles. There you go. <laughs> under the under the bottle <laughs> cap. I love it. And then we would uh, sing karaoke and just chill out for a little while. What? Kind of like unwind. That's fun. It was great. So fun. So yeah, I love I love Rainier in a bottle. Not in the can. It has to be in the bottle. See, yeah, I, I feel like the bottle is key there. Man, okay, so for a cheap beer, um I like a local Montucky for a nice Ooh. for a nice cheap, super cold like pull it straight out of ice from a cooler, right? I can put that back pretty quickly. I find it so satisfying. But Mm-hmm. If Montucky isn't available, I'm honestly a PBR guy. Okay. Yeah. PBR is good. It's great. PBR is good straight up. Like, I'm not here for flavor. I'm honestly not even really here to, like, feel the buzz <laughs> off it. I'm just here for, like, a satisfying cold drink. And that's the key, though, is it has to, you have to drink it fast enough that it's still cold by the end of right. it. <laughs> that is true. So that, that is the stipulation I add to any kind of cheap beer. <laughs> That's a good stipulation. I feel like even if you are drinking for the buzz, you have to drink it fast too. Right. Yes. <laughs> right? right. Like- <laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you got, Kat? Your favorite cheap beer? I would say maybe like a Peroni again out of a bottle oh. on a cold day is pretty nice. See, you know, the, if you want the- something light with like a cold cut sandwich in the sun, mm, that's okay. pretty good. All right. I will say though. I feel like you guys are copping my- out with the glass bottles. What? No. <laughs> I can't I can't help myself. Uh, but I have a cousin who uh loves hams. I mean, he mm, will just throw back like oh. like an obs- like obscene amount of hams. Okay. And uh I he kind of turned me on to them and I actually started following their account on Instagram. And they're hilarious. Hams? They have a brilliant marketing okay, team. Okay, I'm gonna have yeah. to check them out. That's amazing. <laughs> Great memes. Um, there you go. Yeah, one in particular. <laughs> they did a compilation of Donald Trump saying 
billions and billions and the meme just says how many hams am i gonna have this weekend <laughs> it's like a minute long compilation of him saying billions and anyway billions that i was like you know what i'm gonna buy some hams now <laughs> billions of hams so yeah. good. that is beautiful yes could i interest you in a coors banquet or a miller high life always okay our, a- our family had stock in Coors, so no my grandfather like mandated everybody buy Coors oh. for a very long time. Well, of course. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> fiscally irresponsible to do anything else. Right. Naturally. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I grew up, oh. my grandpa uh, would always drink just classic old-fashioned Budweiser from a can. Like, now every every time... I smell Budweiser. Like it's just, it's very familial. Like it reminds me of my grandpa and I'm like, Oh, simpler times. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's your uh, teleport smell. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's one of them for sure. Oh, one here. If we want to stick on the beer train, what's our, or like just the alcohol train. What's the first thing you guys ever drank oh alcoholic beverage you ever consumed this is fun mine was it was like my dad poured it into like a glass like a mason jar for me but it was probably just a couple mouthfuls worth of um fat tire oh yeah that that beer holds a special place in my heart because of that i bet and how old are you oh i mean Definitely 21. No judgment. No judgment at all. I was, okay, so I was under my parents' roof, okay, and no one drove. Let's clear clarify all that, because we definitely, as a podcast, we value responsible drinking, so yes. put that it's out there. It's in our, you know, intro. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, I honestly, I was probably 12, if I remember correctly. That was my first. I honestly okay. didn't like it that much, um, but like- as I got older, you know, like 15, 16, 17, like my dad would pop a beer open and I'd be like, can I try it again? You know, like I'm, I'm hitting that age that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and I was never a partier in high school. It was literally like, if I drank a beer before I was 21, it was on the front porch with my dad. <laughs> That's a nice intro. It's, it's I think. very nice. Yeah, That's I a healthy so. intro. It was, it was healthy. It was very long term. Yeah. Like it was, it was right. like years between my first sip. And the first time I actually finished one on my own, it was <laughs> right. good. My, I was raised with a healthy respect for alcohol, for sure. Yeah. Nice. What about you? Torna, what about you? So, probably it was a glass of wine, if I, if I had to really think about it, because being raised in an Italian family, oh um, yeah. whenever we would visit grandparents, have these big get-togethers with family, it just it was the Italian thing to do. It was like all the kids get to try a little wine. Um, so I probably tried my first wine when I was like maybe seven or eight, like a little sip, and then um, probably again like twelve, thirteen. Mm. Like my parents would let me have a little wine with dinner, things like that. Um, and then probably by the time I was well, I remember. 14, 15, I kind of started to like beer, things like that. Um, my parents didn't care. I could have wine in the house or anything like that, but they weren't going to go out 
and like buy me beer, even though they didn't <laughs> they care. They were going yeah. shopping for <laughs> like, you. That's my, a different my like, dad, level. <laughs> my dad, now he drinks beer and whiskey. I kind of got into that world. Nice. But then, I mean, he drank a little wine. That was about it. Mm. But I really liked beer. Um, but like I said, he wasn't going to go get it for me. And I wasn't going to get a runner or try to do it illegally. <laughs> so I found out that you can buy all the ingredients to make beer <laughs> at any age. Because it's just plastic containers yeast and grains it's like making a bomb um <laughs> yeah a little <laughs> in that there's a recipe involved i mean it's like seemingly innocuous right, right. <laughs> you exactly. put it all together exactly exactly <laughs> so like i'm just buying fertilizer i, was, I went to off. the local brewery <laughs> yeah, exactly i'm just buying fertilizer <laughs> i went to the local um brewing store and just bought all the stuff to make beer they make they had like an intro kit that was like 150 bucks and then bought some grains and started brewing some beer. And how old were you? This is I high school. I was 16. Okay, right on. Um and then, you know, within like 6 weeks, I had I think our some of my first batch was like 63 bottles. <laughs> Good, great. Okay. No, nope. it, it was cool. And yeah. it, it was like not great. So I didn't end up drinking it really. And then I brewed another Just one. Running around I haven't brewed easy. that much beer. Yeah. Right. I, I didn't brew that much beer, but it was like a cool way to get around it. And I learned a little bit about brewing. And that, that kind of was what kind of piqued my interest sure. in, in did your parents, cocktails. Did your parents know that you were doing this? Oh, yeah, 100%. This, yeah, like it okay. was in the pantry. And cool. I destroyed the kitchen one day. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> Fill did, fill the bathtub with ice to like chill the the wart because mm. I did like a full mash um, with whole grain instead of concentrates and I made a a wart strainer. A wart is a process like the the mash when all the grains are cooked down ah. is a wart. Um, made a strainer so you take like a uh, five gallon Gatorade um, dispenser. Wow and put a drain in the bottom and then you can pour all your grains in there and then drain it and it was it was super fun and when you're 16 and it's the summer I think, what else are you gonna do yeah exactly it was like <laughs> I, I could justify spending 10 hours on a day like cooking down stuff mm. and it was so fun nice did you save any of it yeah i still i have it here is there some yeah that'd be kind not of the beer but i've got all the brewing stuff oh not um, like you didn't save a bottle or anything i mean not i don't know if it'd keep but I had some bottles I ended up throwing away because they got yeah. smoked. Oh, yeah. Um, they were too old. I, I was just recently mm. introduced to the concept of like of aging beers. I didn't even know that was a mm. that was a thing you could do. Oh, yes. Very much so. What? Mm. Okay. That could be a whole episode. I bought some aged beers. I actually found recently, last year, found some stouts. Uh, bought, I think it might have been Firestone. Which I think is Chicago, maybe Firestone. Great. No, that's um, that's uh, Northern California, I think. Oh, maybe it is. I, I think it is. I can't. Uh, I can't remember. Let's Google it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I think Firestone is California. I'm thinking Goose Island. Mm. Um, Goose Island, I think, is a Chicago brewery. Anyway, found a stout of theirs. I think it was like a 2014 that someone had aged. Jeez. Um, and it was so amazing. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't just, even know. Like, of course, I know. Like, scotch needs to sit for a decade, right, before you're drinking mm-hmm. it. But I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't even think beer could be on that same, like, in that same concept. 
Right. Interesting. Kat, what about you? What was your introduction to alcohol? <laughs> My introduction, um, I also began to dabble in alcohol as a child, <laughs> but on accident. Um, oh, my sister, who is nine years older than me, was graduating high school, had graduated, and we threw her a graduation party with our family. And um, we had my mom bought like, you know, I don't know, a dozen bottles of Chandon champagne and mm. people were, you know, just sort of sipping on it. Um, and my sister was allowed to have some. And, you know, by then she had done a lot more than <laughs> sipped champagne. But anyway, um, and so we were having this little celebration and I was, I think, like nine or ten. And I didn't know what champagne was. Yeah. And it was just this pretty bubbly thing in these cool glasses. And every time somebody like set it down, I just started yeah, like, this taking is, sips. Ooh, nice. <laughs> and like, like a, and I'm a child. So like a couple hours in, I was pretty lit. No kidding. <laughs> there's, yeah. And eventually, you know, my sister realized what was going on, you know, and she eventually was like, mom. We gotta cut Cal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Catherine is drunk. Yeah. And, you know, my mom's like, what? And uh, there's actually video footage somewhere oh. of um, me literally, this is not an exaggeration, me standing on the kitchen table singing, uh, oh God, um, Free Falling oh, by Tom oh, Petty geez. into a wooden oh, spoon. Oh, and my, my sweet Hungarian grandmother, who's no longer with us, like, had no clue I was drunk and was just like singing along with me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and all I remember was feeling like, I mean, I had the worst headache the oh, next yeah. day. Poor little kid. Well, like, so do know, we all the sugar? Do we know for certain mm -hmm. that your grandma was not also lit and just singing along with you? Oh, I think, well, I think she was too. Yeah. I Fantastic. think she, you know, was having a, everyone was having a good time. I'm just, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing young cat, like running around, like I'll top off your ginger ale for you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 no problem. Like, wow. Good yeah, work. It was it was pretty ridiculous. And then by the time I was in high school, we like my buddies and I um became friends with the owner. His name was Randy, and he was the owner of the Quick Stop in our neighborhood. Mm. And he basically allowed us to we could buy like whatever alcohol we wanted from him when we were in high school it was terrible we used Jeez. to just like like we literally were like jane silent bob style like hanging out at the quick stop <laughs> and randy would like and i would always buy like really cheap malbec red wine oh. and didn't know what i was oh. doing and i would like open it and save it for like weeks and it was just disgusting <laughs> vinegary but I, yeah but Ugh. i would still drink it Oof. anyways so all right yeah. all right <laughs> my palate has refined since yeah then. <laughs> there you go with like a delicious old-fashioned tonight right right exactly right now yeah. oh so good <laughs> speaking of here now cat you proposed for episode one, like a series of icebreaker questions. I was wondering if you would guide us through these. Totally. Yes. Um, I think our first, we could dive in with one that's sort of fun because um, we all know each other and we've gotten to know each other as we've been sort of prepping to launch Whiskey Bench. Mm, right. But we don't know each other incredibly well. Well, the Stevens know each other very well. Right. Yes. I'm new to the mix. <laughs> so we could share three things about ourselves that 
our co-hosts don't know. Ooh, okay. Do we want to rapid yeah. fire this like around the table one at a time? Yeah, I think so. Just like loop, okay. loop, loop, loop. Okay. Okay. I'll go first. I okay. find the idea of living downtown in a big Pacific Northwest city and owning no car super romantic. I would love to just own a bike <laughs> and just get around by walking and biking and live like high rise Pacific Northwest city. Okay. Right wow. on. <laughs> I, there's something about that life that just seems so cool to me. I don't, embarrassingly, I do not know how to dive or really swim underwater. Oh. Well, we should go swimming. <laughs> I know. We missed our chance to go swimming this summer. I but know. Every, every summer, like, this is the year. I'm going to learn how to dive. And what am I saying next summer? Well, I we, don't. we could do it anytime. Well, the water's just as cold as it was it, well, three months ago. That's I mean, actually, you got hot springs true. there in Bozeman, too. It's just snowing outside now, but. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's embarrassing. All right, Torna. <laughs> okay. Now, this is going to be difficult because. Henning probably knows more about me than maybe even I do. <laughs> Truly. Well, okay. Um, Thank you for flattering me, but <laughs> we never know. <laughs> right. Um, I guess one thing that well, Henning knows this, but whatever, I'm going to go f- fire it. I am a uh, huge fan of metal music. There it is. Which is something that, you know, I don't know if you knew that, but maybe I already told this at one point. But yeah, I'm a metalhead. I love it. And that's something that a lot of people don't. What kind of metal? Not like. Like weird well, Nordic. Like No, I'm not into like the metal Viking or... <laughs> metal. I'm not into the classic metal. I like metalcore, more yeah. modern. And then I like some of the heavier, like deathcore, you mm. might call it. Deathcore, if you will. Deathcore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To keep it on the music train, then, I am a huge fan of Bob Dylan, and okay. especially right. early Bob Dylan, like sixties and seventies. Times they are a change okay. in. Oh yeah, yeah. slow train coming. <laughs> like I, I grew up mocking him, before that, but. <laughs> Something switched in me like after I, uh, I don't know what the precipitating event was where I was just like, why am I mocking someone who's like obviously revered for something, you know, like, right. Like there's, there's a reason he's a classic and there's a reason that he won a freaking Nobel prize in literature. Right. Like I should. Yeah. I that's I didn't know really that. Fun. I think it was twenty in thirteen or twenty fourteen, but he he, he held okay. out on the deadline to accept it until the last day, like a year after he was nominated for it. He held out on accepting it, and apparently, originally, like he didn't want to accept it. He was like, "I do I need to? Like this has never been. I've never been here for awards or anything." <laughs> But I guess right. he got pressured into it, so he eventually accepted. Well, but, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, so for his lyric writing alone, that was the reason I showed up for his music. And uh, I've mm. learned I've learned to love it. Like, for the same reason I grew up, d- I, I can easily say I despised country music when I was young. 
But I mean, I'm at the point where it's like, why am I going to judge someone for enjoying this kind of music? Like, just because it's not made for me doesn't mean it's not good. You know? Well. Nope. That might be true of certain country artists, but I think there's Correct. some music that maybe is objectively just trash. Oh. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> okay. Well, hold that thought because that is a very important word. Trash? No, oh. objectivity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew up. we were going to go there. So, Come on. Okay, we got to get these icebreakers done, though. So, Kat, you're next. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll get through this. Okay, if we're sticking with music, oh. something neither one of you know about me is that I hate the Beatles. <gasps> okay. I loathe okay. the Beatles. <laughs> I will say I do respect them and their place in music okay. history, mm-hmm. okay. but I don't like them. Fair I, enough. I honestly... Yeah. They're, the Beatles are like how I was with Bob Dylan. I was like, they're, he's a classic for a reason, so I'm going to check him out. And then I learned to enjoy it. I'm in that pre-learning to enjoy it phase with the Beatles. So I might, I kind of, mm. I don't know if, I don't think despise is the right word, but if the Beatles come on, I usually switch it. You know? I have, dear to my heart, a passion for entomology. Hmm. Growing up, I was obsessed with running around and catching bugs and freezing them and doing my little mad scientist (laughs) thing where I'd pin my little bugs to styrofoam and label them and learn about the different insects. That's awesome. I can't can't (laughs) join you here, Stephen. I'm sorry. Like... If there's any evidence for extraterrestrial life, I think they're among us and I think they are insects. <laughs> like they're so creepy crawly. <laughs> I, I hate every form. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, so yeah, I was a bug guy. So are you the type that you don't, if you find like a gnarly spider in your house, do you try to capture it and take it outside? No. Just mercilessly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I was it. killing bugs and <laughs> skewering them with. I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's for science. Mm, it's not really right. science if you're just like it. It was. It was marrying your shooting your spider. You know, a noble pursuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah just smashing things right. isn't quite yeah. science, but fair. I enough. never collected spiders. Okay. Yeah, they're a little hard to pin and things like that. That's, and they're yeah, straight up nasty. Okay, I'll get. I'll get. Fair, okay, fair my last one for this. <laughs> Is I love the activity of chopping firewood. It's mm. a blast. It, it, few things feel as satisfying as like as looking around your stump and seeing all the rounds you just cut. I love it. Mm. Is it one of those things where you can like just turn your mind off and like? Oh, zen most out definitely. Well, most you do definitely. It. And I also love the effect you get like. You can be standing outside and it can be literally, it could be snowing, but you're still like t-shirt and overalls, right? Because you're working up enough of a sweat that you're still warm, but it's snowing around you and, oh, I feel so badass. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it a lot. Okay. Okay. Mine, last one. I survived swine flu. Oh, there you go. Whoa. H- H1N1. H1N1. No way. <laughs> yes. When I was uh when I was a freshman in college at San Francisco State, which Henning just recently learned about yep. sort of those <laughs> <laughs> the dark days. 
And uh, I was sort of just like a dirty hippie that didn't wear shoes in San Francisco. And lo and behold, I contracted H1N1. And it was gnarly. I was like super sick for about three weeks. You survived survived an epidemic before pandemics were cool. Yeah, right? I know. When coronavirus came around, I was like, come on. Can't be as bad as swine flu. I already got swine flu under my belt. Bring it it on. Just like notches, notches on the belt now. Yeah. Very good. Torna, last one. Oh, man. Okay. I love to paint. No way. Okay. You got me. I didn't know that. However, I'm awful. What what do you like to paint? Like anything. Like I like landscapes, awful. things like that. Okay. Like trying By to whose paint. Standard? Bob Ross. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> By my own stand no no no. By my own okay. standards. So anytime I paint something, nobody sees it and it gets thrown away. Oh. No joke. <laughs> Is that how you get back at the world? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. Do you do, do you throw it away intentionally, like as just an act of artistic expression, or like you would actually be embarrassed that someone saw it? Not that not that I would be embarrassed, but it's like mm, there's no okay. value in it yeah. to me. So yeah, but you find value in the exercise of painting. Yes, there exactly. it is. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So like, there's a there's an exercise from the book the artist's way called morning pages where the author like evangelistically advises everyone to write three full pages with with a pen every morning write three full full pages and use it just as like a stream of consciousness just get your mind out in the morning and then mm-hmm. throw it away like the point is never to revisit no. them it's just to like oh. wipe down the blackboard before you start the next day right I like that. That seems like a kind of seems exercise. like what you're doing with paintings, I mean, I, Stephen. I like it. Maybe so. I haven't done it in a while, hmm. just because I've got it's a lot of. It's just like plate, a venting but. of <laughs> like creativity in something that you don't. It's not like you you are putting expectation on yourself to like I need to be able to make money as a painter in one year. You're just I'm here. I like it. Oh, it's heck no. out. It's like me oh, and no, chopping firewood. It's yeah. like you can just be with it. Ah. Uh, yeah, man, I sure love this, but I ain't no lumberjack. <laughs> Same idea. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Precisely. All right. Do we want to move on to the next icebreaker? Let's do it. I think so. Let's let's continue. Okay. Uh, what is one goal that you plan to accomplish during your adult lifetime? Ooh. Torna. Like, I recently learned how to paraglide. My goal is to do a cross-country flight where I start in Bozeman and unassisted, so no um, like paramotor, just strictly taking thermals. I want to fly to Billings. Wow. I think that would be amazing. Mm. Is that, I don't know anything about this. Is that something that you could do in one sitting or is it something where you'd have to land? No, you do it like, in one, one go. One go. Okay. Right. Um, okay. I'll go. I would like to have some of my creative writing published mm. at some point. I have. I can make that happen. Yeah. Can you? <laughs> I have. Um, 
I have a collection of short stories that I've been working on for many, many years um, based on like the tales of my father's youth because he was sort of a rambunctious character Mm. from like childhood up through early adulthood. I mean, he still is, but um, (laughs) lots of great tales. And so I've been like, we for a long time I was writing sort of dystopian stuff and eventually I kind of was uninspired and sort of felt like I had tapped that well of creativity and um was kind of going through like a dry spell and um one day it just like a light bulb went off and I was my looking at my dad and he was telling me some ridiculous story and I thought oh my god there's like there's my wellspring <laughs> of like content ideas mm. right and so I've been working on those for a really long time and like here and there. And so anyway, one day I'd love to compile them into a book and have that published. That is so cool. Yeah. That was beautiful. Moralize my day. Oh, that's so special. I love that idea. Um, mine. So I'm, I'm really, uh, drawing a lot of inspiration off of, um, Jason Stapleton's concept of nomadic wealth. I like the idea of being able to create a business or create like a stream of income and be able to take it anywhere in the world and like achieve maximal freedom that way. And the way I want to do that is launch, own and operate my own podcast network. Do it. <laughs> we're on we're on our way, man. It's it. it's it's right. something that I kind of <laughs> discovered as a passion like a year and a half ago and uh Gosh, I just, I I love podcasting. I think everyone should have a podcast and just continue, like, especially the grassroots um, origins of podcasting. You know, it wasn't necessarily like Spotify buying up Joe Rogan and Gimlet and, and creating like a walled garden concept, basically just how Netflix and Hulu became their own competitors and all that. What I loved about, especially the, the early days of podcasting is that it was like this decentralized thing that just anyone could get into there's very low barrier to entry and i think it's such a fruitful way to share ideas you know and being able to uh take audio anywhere in our world at this point like the fact that like my voice or like even with the whiskey bench like our voice is in someone's ear right now while they drive home from work or they're doing the dishes or they're mowing the lawn or you know, they're sitting at their desk doing their own work. I think the fact that audio can be taken anywhere in our day and age, I think that's super special. And I also think that's important. And I think it's important to get back to like the grassroots of podcasting coming from normal people and not just celebrities who want to find another way to capitalize on their, their already established like brand. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook.com slash WhiskeyBenchPod for Android users. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. Well, what's crazy is that it's so accessible today for people to be able to podcast right. we have nice setups you have a nice setup but 
I mean, your smartphone and your headphones with built-in speakers are all you need to start a podcast. You can record on your phone. You can do all of these things. And I don't know exactly what the number is, but almost 50% of the human population has a smartphone. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like in the developed yeah. world, for sure. Well, and even in the, you know, underdeveloped developing. or developing yeah. worlds. Yeah. I mean, places that are incredibly underdeveloped, people have smartphones. Hmm. It's cool. It's, I mean, knowledge at your fingertips. But yeah, so many people can start a podcast. And even in just doing some teaser trailer recording and the process of it, there's something so valuable in being able to just spew out your mm-hmm. thoughts because so much of understanding stems from that process. And I actually think this is a really good segue into what we want to talk about tonight. Mm. Being able to ask questions, spew information, things like that, that's kind of all part of what is the Socratic method to ask questions, to answer questions, to, you know, put information out there, to organize it, to digest it. It's a very important way of thinking that I think a lot of people don't have practice with. So by making a podcast, even if nobody listens, has immense value. Yeah, for your own sort of personal development. Exactly, exactly. Expansion of knowledge. Yeah, it certainly teaches you how to be a better speaker, and it teaches you how to formulate your own ideas in a way that you you hope at first, you, you merely hope that the ideas that you're formulating are compelling to someone. And then as you continue to grow in your craft, because honestly it's a form of public speaking it's a lot more intimate because we end up directly in someone's ear while they're doing their own thing um but ultimately public speaking when you boil it down is being so comfortable talking in front of people that you get to be yourself again up on stage or behind the mic right so the fact that we can remove the the immense um the immense barrier of fear and trepidation like you know i have no fear of being in front of the first hundred people to listen to this episode of the whiskey bench while i'm sitting here in my room sipping on my own glass of scotch in gym shorts and a t-shirt right but if i was up on stage trying to deliver the same ideas in front of a hundred pairs of eyeballs i would i would be racked with nerves and racked with doubt about like am i actually adding value am i saying something worth hearing and that's something i think you have to consider with podcasting is uh, yes i do think there's immense value added just to yourself like the fact that you you get to generate and learn how to communicate your own ideas but ultimately i like i'm not interested in in podcasting that doesn't ultimately add value to someone else's life you know A hundred percent. And that's frankly, I think what we want to do with Whiskey Bench is we want to sit down. We want to have a conversation when we we want to explore.
explore the world around us. We want to, you know, put out our frustrations when we see something we think is wrong. We want to put out our praise when we see something that's beautiful. Uh, and then we want people to come along with us on that journey. And I, my ultimate goal would be to have people engaged with us. I want people to bring things up with us, give us uh, ideas for future episodes and kind of build that community. And I think the best way to do that is to just act like ourselves. Because frankly, the the beautiful thing about this uh, gathering is that every time Henning and I get together, it's pretty much this. <laughs> yeah. We just talk about oh, man, whatever we want. Man, Politics, philosophy, and it's mathematics. An inspiration fest. Every time like you and I it take is. a road trip to go see a band on tour, a metal band on tour. It's like, I leave that trip yes. being like, I'm going to go start a business and make a million freaking dollars, man. Like, <laughs> yes, let's exactly, go. Exactly. And then every time I got together with Kat, it was like, Hey Kat, how you doing? Like, good. What's going on in your life? And then boom, we just dive into something. <laughs> Talk and shop. Yeah, talk and shop. And that's what we always <laughs> always call it. And it's amazing. Yep. yep. And I think everyone should talk shop. So Yeah. What did we what do we say we're here to do? We're here to uh we're not here to teach, we're here to mm, explore. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. We and wanna, hopefully you'll learn ex- some stuff along the way and Absolutely. Yeah. That's what happens when you explore. Exactly. We learn. Hopefully people listening to us learn. It's fruitful. It is. Mm-hmm. Out here doing a little exploring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always get the picture, like one of my Shit. favorite mental images is uh, derived from physics. You guys remember the the big deal made of the Higgs boson or like the God particle as it was called Um, at the center of the standard model, right? Like they discovered evidence of this particle that essentially imbues everything in the material world with its mass by being a particle that travels through what's called the Higgs field, right? So as the particle travels and actually like moves from a point A to point B, it essentially picks up mass in order to give everything else its mass, right? Like it's the it's the base ingredient for oh, you're a you're a silly little quark. Oh, do you want to be something? Well, you need me and you need me to be in motion. So like the idea uh, you just gave me, Stephen. It was like, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna go somewhere. We're gonna travel on any given episode, and we're just gonna try and dig into an idea or a current event or, a, you know, a philosophical way of being in the world. And just by the fact of us traveling and doing outward and out loud processing, people are gonna get something from it, right? Like we're creating something that matters. Because matter is a funny word, right? There's like there's things that are matter, and there's also things that matter. So like we're we're traveling, just exploring an idea, and we're discovering and like gathering around us matter and things that matter. Again, this is all kind of wrapping, or I should say, it's all leading into the same question, and that is. As you're putting stuff out there, 
as you're exploring this beautiful world that we all share, how do you, how do you decipher the information that you get? I mean, if you look out the window, you see all the things that are happening and you make deductions off of what you're seeing and you kind of get a picture of of what the world is. But that's a really like rudimentary kind of basic biological like description of like seeing and knowing. But a step down from that, I'm really interested in understanding how you both make sense of the world, especially today. It's difficult. I often describe trying to decipher truth is a full-time job. Yes. And that's, I think that's part of, um, that's part of the challenge that your average person faces because there's such a thing as like rational ignorance, right? Where it makes sense for people to, they don't have the time to invest in delving into every issue to be as sort of to have the expert knowledge that they may need to really be able to decipher what's true, what's biased, what's quote unquote fake news. Right. And, and that's a, and that's rational on their part. They're, they're faced with very real trade-offs and it might make more sense for them to work or put their kids to bed or make dinner rather than, you know, spending hours reading, finding trusted sources, fact checking, you know, and so that's where, you know, the idea that we have sort of institutions that we can trust that are reputable, that we can just depend on to give us objective truth, which right. I say that hesitantly. Um, right. Well, objectivity is a hot topic. It's a disputed issue. We live in a culture, mostly in the West, that I'm aware of where it's like everyone's trying to find their truth, understand their truth. You know, when you're speaking about something, well, my truth is fill in the blank Hmm. that that is subjectivity, right? So what are your thoughts, both of you on truth? Is there a point? And I will say that, I think some things you have to say, well, I think, but are there certain things where you can justify saying that this is true? So I want to know, is there truth? Is there objectivity? Who wants to start? I want to hear from Kat <laughs> first, because we, we've talked about this in our, in our meetings before, and uh, I've done a lot of talking off air, and I'm curious to hear Kat first. Okay, if the question is, does objective truth exist in any aspect of our world? I think yes. Whether there's a consensus on what that truth is, uh, no, I don't think there's a consensus, depending, depending on the truth. I think a large, <laughs> if not everyone, would agree the sky is blue, right? Mm-hmm. There are th- sort of fundamental things like that that all humans are sort of experiencing in the same way. But then there are other things that are a bit more nuanced that are, um, I mean, we're sort of interpreting the world based on our human experience and that's unique to each person. 
And so sort of the way I interpret the world around me is going to be a bit different than the way you or, you know, you Torna or you Henning would experience the world and the way you would interpret the world. And I mean, we could be at the same event and walk away with sort of different conclusions based on the way we were raised, Mm -hmm. for example. And so, so is there a true, is there some sort of true experience to have been taken from that? Or is, is that open to interpretation? And there's sort of like a plethora of realities that you can experience right that are valid so here's something i'm just thinking of it's true we all have different experiences we all perceive things from different vantage points so really we are like a program right but everything that we are taking in is raw data so us three looking at something we are three separate programs We take in the same raw data and what we output after we run our function might all be different. But does that mean that that we can all three be wrong? There Mm -hmm. is some input and output that is, see, but then if I say true or accurate, we're not getting to the root. Well, so then maybe in that sort of in that metaphor, the truth lies in the raw data, but like how the only way you experience the raw data is by interpreting it right is by processing it right and so if by processing it it sort of perverts it maybe maybe that's not quite the right word but like it changes it in some way for you personally like how do you can you ever really capture what that truth is maybe so maybe it's more like editing a photo where the data is like a raw image file, if you're familiar with editing. If you edit a raw data file, you do not lose any information from that file. However, if you take that raw file, convert it to a JPEG, and then start editing it, every time you edit it, you start to lose data, which you cannot revert. So your end product is a reflection of all of the information that came in, but it is missing something at the end of the day mm-hmm. that you will never get back. So what's true in that scenario? It would go back to what you're saying. The original data yeah. is what's true. Mm-hmm. So are we capable of understanding that? I think because the way we understand it perverts it, then maybe not. Okay. Yeah, maybe not. So objectivity exists, which I agree with, but you cannot always necessarily know it. I think that's fair. No matter how you perceive the world or how anyone perceives the world there is something that is accurate even if all 7.7 billion people on earth don't recognize it that's where i I stand yeah i i I like to think so and it's just interesting to think that like you could have one reality Mm -hmm. that maybe there's sort of a societal like consensus on and maybe you know you do too much acid and sort of (laughs) you're like your grasp on reality slips away and then all of a sudden you're sort of living in a new reality and you're interpreting Mm -hmm. things differently because there isn't a consensus on that version of reality that's not considered true but it's true to that person so i I don't know it is subjective to some degree it's sound it sounds like you both are recognizing the existence of objective truth but still i think in probably more nuanced ways but like if i was going to boil it down it it sounds like 
you would both say objective capital T truth exists, but that still subjectivity is the way you operate. Correct. I think everyone is victim might be the word. Everyone's victim to their own subjectivity, which I think ties into your biases, which I hate. I wish that I could be an unbiased person. I can't. I I think that's ever be unnatural. Yes. Yeah. Right. We have things about us that tilt our perspective. Just the way it is. You can, I think, get some understanding of those biases and try to work around them. But I don't know if you can truly outsmart the biological element of it. No, but I think that mankind throughout, like as our societies have evolved, we've sought ways to sort of um, like come up with processes to protect against that Mm -hmm. or to kind of like restrain it to some degree. Like the scientific method is a, is, is a way of trying where to, I wanted to go next with. Okay, this. cool. Yeah, that's like a way of getting at some objective truth. Talking about the scientific method, and this is why I'm so for claiming objective truth exists, is because of the scientific method, and it's something that I'm very invested in, and I have great admiration for. I have a minor in physics, a minor in mathematics, and a degree in biology. Understanding principles of these subjects and how they are used to interpret data is essential. And I know Henning is a huge math guy and physics guy, and that's something that we always man. Out we about. used to sit on the patio of coffee shops and do calculus for three hours for fun. For fun. Oh my After God. we were, we were like, we want to stay up. To scuff with our over the summer, <laughs> we would we would get a Good French press of yeah. coffee each, <laughs> That's like... and we would just go yep. down a page of calculus Dude, problems. Honestly, that is there's value to that, and if there's not some sort of consistency, some objectivity, me doing a math problem and getting a different answer than you doing a math problem would not matter. You could not be graded on mathematics. You could not be graded on a physics problem. If you can't agree that there is consistency in anything, which is really what saying objectivity doesn't exist requires, then all of that really is for for not. And so a lot of people in the postmodern bracket of thinking probably don't realize they're postmodern, right? That everyone can kind of think their own reality and their truth and things like that. A lot of those same people would be the people that are like, well, I believe in science. Well, your foundation of what you think of as far as true directly contradicts the statement that you believe in science. If you say, I believe in science, and that's why fill in the blank, we go into a million political topics right now, right? But then at the same time, you're like, well, I can't really talk about that because my truth doesn't represent maybe what their truth is. You are a hypocrite. Those two things cannot and will not exist together. I agree with you, but I think where, I guess if I'm going to stick up for some of my postmodern friends, which honestly, which you is, should. this this Whiskey Bench project is going to be super fun because in our in our planning sessions, like I accidentally discovered that I might be way more postmodern than I think I am. <laughs> which was hilarious. I might need to dig oh up God. that clip. Do you have to do that? throw it in here. <laughs> okay. It would be really funny. Or just at least when we're like, are you po- are you postmodern? postmodern? And then there's just a pause and Henning goes, oh my God, I, oh my God, I think I might yeah. be postmodernist. So, <laughs> I think, Torna, that you're describing something that's true, 
And I guess like my, my entire stance here is that objective truth exists, but that it reaches an unknowable asymptote when you attempt to get right. closer to it. In, in calculus language, right, there's a limit and you're never going to quite meet the line at which that limit is defined. Right. You can get closer. You can get closer. You can get closer. But the question is, is it is it a limit or is there an equal right. sign? Right. And I, because of what you guys are establishing as there are filters by which we interpret the world and like the act of interpretation to me inherently means that like you guys have already said, we're getting a little bit further away from like the raw data or the raw facts. Right. And I think while, while I agree a function defining, you know, two X, that's always going to mean the slope of that line plotted on an X, Y axis is going to be two. I believe, of course, that that exists. Like as a very amateur mathematician, I, I I have no respect for anyone who would say uh, otherwise. Because like we have a rigorous system f- of mathematical proofs, and like I I think the scientific process is a good example of a filter by which we've chosen to adopt to interpret the world based on what we're collecting as raw fact or raw data. I think where we get into problem issues though is like we we can define objectively as many math functions as we want to as like a capital i like isness but given the fact that we all choose our filters and if we don't choose them they're a priori like they just emerge within us based on what we value um and what's rev- relevant to us i think we can't derive oughts from is and that's why like yes the scientific process the scientific method is good right? Mathematics is good. Even the Socratic method is a a way of trying to get down to the root of things. But when you're dealing with Mm -hmm. fact and trying to translate that into, therefore, you ought to act like this, I think that's where it all breaks down. I think that's where subjectivity is on the other side of that function and like another limit defined on the other side. Like, hey, you know, like you can have all the raw data, but like however you act is the way you act, regardless of how you might think you're interpreting it. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking? So maybe a better way to look at it is that we are subjective creatures, but we live in a strictly objective world. However, we live as if we live in a subjective world. Well, we're subjective creatures living in an objective world, and the only way to process the objective is world is through our subjective being. Like, yeah, exactly. Yes. So, so there's a filtering process. Right. Yeah, right. it's like yeah. if I'm going to sit in front of my computer for 10 hours a day, then possibly getting a pair of blue light filtering glasses is good. And if I spend 10 hours a day wearing those glasses, I'm going to start thinking that the computer always looks that red, but then... I take them off and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is, I mean, I guess Plato's cave is a really good analogy for what we're talking about. Like there are facts of the world being danced out behind the prisoners of Plato's cave in their paradigm. The shadow is what's real, not necessarily the object that is coming between the wall and the light source. Right. So it's like, we're obviously not discovering anything new in a philosophical realm here. Like dudes like Plato, we're trying to figure this out thousands and thousands of years ago, but it it's an important discussion for us to have, especially at the beginning of something like this, because I know, Kat, your your sport is politics, right? Yes. <laughs> and and that's that's where things get squishy for me is there there are an infinite oh, yeah. <laughs> number of facts available to us that behave as potential 
until our filters are applied to them. And we can either let our filters be given to us by authorities we trust. They can be a priori filters that that just arise based on, cat, like you pointed out, like the community you grew up in and the way people around you like no one necessarily had to teach us that gravity worked. Like we discovered that for ourselves when we fell off the swing. But I, th- I think the most important part here is that if you can wake up to the fact that objective truth exists, but you have to eventually develop an ethic for yourself on how to interpret that. Like when we get to, when we intentionally choose the filters with which we engage the truth of the world i think that's like that's where we find the most empowered human beings because they can articulate i'm choosing to act this way based on the facts available to me because these are the values i hold to be best for like a flourishing connected healthy human life so before we continue i actually want to throw this out there because we'd mentioned plato's idea of the cave and the shadows are what we perceive as reality if you want to look at like the oldest definition of truth you go back to the philosophers and it's aristotle's definition of truth which you can i'll, I'll read it and you'll see and you can come be like oh that's obvious but i think it, there is something uh, valuable in it mm. and it is that a statement is true when it says what is is and what is not is not a statement is false when it says what is is not and what is not is and i think that is stripped down at its basis a fairly solid definition mm. of yeah truth a equals a b equals b a does not equal b i think in the modern world where that becomes a challenge is that there are gatekeepers Correct. to knowing what is and what is not yes and um, this is important they face incentives like any yep. other human yep. being right? right and so they the way they conclude what is and what is not or what should be presented as is or is not is determined by the incentives they face. And increasingly, people re- we rely on those gatekeepers to be objective and honest. And um, and they're not always, right? right? And so... Well, and I think that's important, though, for us to then kind of dive into the more... Pr- I mean, I love discussing the more philosophical sides of these conversations. But the honest truth is everything that we've discussed so far doesn't help us in the world. So like you said, there's these gatekeepers and we're kind of held to the power that they hold. So how do you get around looking at something and kind of maneuvering your way through those gates, finding your own route to the truth? Because I think that's really important because at least on a weekly basis, maybe on a daily basis, I will see something. Generally, it's in the news, and I will take one look at it, just a headline or the introductory sentence of the article, and I can just, my my BS alarm goes off. <laughs> yeah. And I can just look at it and say, I know, and, and I'm not kidding when I can say consistently, I know that this is not true. Yeah. So then, <laughs> totally. then, then you have to do all of these, it should be an Olympic sport, to figure out where this statement came from and then come to some conclusion on my own accord what is your daily process for that i know i invest time in it i know you invest time in it yeah i don't know about henning or do you care and that's an important question Mm -hmm. and it goes it goes back to what we said earlier i cannot fault someone for not wanting to or feeling they are unable to worry about uh discovering What's true? To answer your question, Stephen, if if we're talking politics specifically, I I actually don't care, to be honest. 
I, mm-hmm. and this, this is kind of coming back to what I've been harping on as, you know, if we're choosing our ethics of how to filter the facts available to us, uh, one of mine is honestly relevance. I, I, I just think we all operate that way. Whether you choose to allow politics to be relevant to you, I think is a legitimate choice you have to make. And for me, you know, presidential election, my life as a 25 year old American white male doesn't change all that much, whether the dude is an elephant or a donkey. Is that an acceptable answer? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I I filter all headlines through just a a big blinking bullshit meter and then just move on. Because honestly, like it doesn't change that much about how I act in the world. It doesn't change uh, the way I relate to the people I love and the the fun and the passion I discover in podcasting, like it really doesn't change that much. And ultimately, like kind of what I said in the icebreakers, like my goal with podcast networking and uh, being able to generate a mobile income and, you know, ultimately achieve nomadic wealth is like I, I want government as a whole to just be wholly irrelevant because I want, I want to be able to be free and just say, OK, you guys, I don't like how you guys are treating me. So I'm I'm dipping. I'm out. Right. And that is exactly the trajectory that I am on. But until Mm -hmm. I am at that point, I am choosing to be involved and pursue that. Because in the situation that I'm in now, the luxury of me not caring about politics isn't a reality. So until it is, I'm forced to. So do you think it's mis- misguided for me to not care then? Because you and I, like, as far as life circumstances, you know, we're talking about nomadic wealth and being able to generate income wherever you go. Like, right. you're way further along. You're a you're an entrepreneur just by the fact you're an independent contractor. I'm essentially a wage slave to a very specific oil refinery in Montana, USA. So, like, do you think it's irresponsible of me to not care? I would say yes. Nice. Yes. I would say yes. Because there is a lot at stake, right? Uh, if you're not in a position where you're your own boss, the very policies that you don't care about can affect your job security as it is now, can affect you moving towards that goal of independence, depending on how you're taxed, depending on regulations that are implemented, yeah. depending on you know liberties that you and your wife will be able to um, have things like that. Those are all things that I think you should be very concerned about. And I think everyone should be concerned about Uh, as they're moving towards that goal of being, you know, independent, being outside the world of politics. I think that it's rational heading for you to take that (laughs) approach, but I think, I think it's also the product of, to use a word of our times, privilege Mm. and also sort of the product of the communities that you guys are from i think there are other parts of our country and certainly other parts Mm -hmm. of the world that um haven't achieved the level of sort of like comfortable prosperity that a community like bozeman or billings has Mm -hmm. and that are as like homogenous and sort of have this culture of civility and that makes them very sort of safe prosperous, pleasant communities to live in. And there are other places where sort of um, that are still striving towards that or they're in jeopardy of it's they're in a more fragile state. And and so as Torn is saying, sort of in those situations, sort of the policies that are actually implemented on the ground are are felt more by the people living in those communities. Mm, Um, Right. So it's rational. It's easy to be to have that position. But I think it also took you know, centuries of work to get there. And um, I think it, it can be undone faster than um, it than it took to, to build to that point. 
Right. And I want to also add to this because I know that we are all very liberal people, mm-hmm. right? We value liberties. And I think today in this political climate, so many people are saying, well, it's irresponsible to vote in your own interest, right? It's selfish. It comes from a position of privilege, right? You should only think about like the collective. The beautiful thing about being truly liberal as we are. In the traditional sense. In the traditional sense, right? To value individual liberties is that voting in your own interest is voting in the interest of everyone. Wanting to see policy or lack thereof, because both are essential, that allow people to become better individuals, that allow them to pursue their dreams, that allow them to become more educated. Those are all things that lift everyone up. And so being like libertarian, liberal, and being involved in politics, I think is so important because it is furthering your ability to find success. And a beautiful byproduct of that is that you are allowing other people to find means of achieving that same end. Amen. Well, allow me to say before we wrap up here that I, I take everything you guys just said very seriously. And man, Kat, if you don't already have me convicted, I... I, in this, in this podcast project, I'm ready to learn from you guys and I'm ready to determine or at least figure out how to choose the way I engage in this arena. You guys make, you're, you guys are making a lot of good points. And I, I guess when I, now this is me just trying to save face because I'm, I'm so aware of how accurately you just critiqued me. But I guess when I say I don't care, uh, you know, I made a joke about donkey and elephant and that's probably what mm-hmm. I care the least about. I think the party stuff is uh like we've referred to politics as sports already um i think it's it's very much just very like much a, so. a roman coliseum on a large scale and it's very psychological <laughs> it's not like people getting mauled by lions right but yeah i guess me just flippantly saying i don't care is going to come across like i don't care how any of it affects anyone else and it sounds like the the the, the worst version of self-interest that i honestly don't think i hold so so thank you for what you guys said and uh man, I'm just, I'm looking forward to doing this together. May I close with just um, a prayer? No. What? <laughs> you animal. Fuck off Can with that. that yeah, no, I will. <laughs> no, I want to just leave with some closing thought. I, I want to try and illustrate what we're all about and a little closing statement about truth and exploring the world. Kind of just wrap things up for tonight. Um, I want to start with a quote from Jordan Peterson, someone who's a huge influence in my life. Uh, I have a lot of respect for. But he holds truth in such high esteem. He says that telling the truth is the best way to orient ourselves in a world of chaos and uncertainties. He also goes on to say that when you speak the truth, you are serving good, as in moral good, rather than evil. And that equates to serving life rather than death. And I think that's really important. In social media world that we live today, we really value the impression, the image, the farce projection of really what truth is. You know, we value that image more than the reality. We project what we want reality to be versus what it is. And I think breaking that down and being able to step back and take in hard truths and process that is really important. And then in this highly partisan world, 
the value of truth is so important because both sides of these you know political tribal wars are constantly pointing pointing out the you know the lies of one side and willfully ignoring the lies of their own side and i think it's very important that you break that down and pointing out reality no matter who is guilty of failing to do so is crucial i think that's how we hold people accountable that's how we understand better how the world works truly i think pointing out false information and lies is ultimately how we are going to become closer together not allowing based on who it is a lie to persist i think is very very important until next week guys thank you for joining us on the whiskey bench if you would do us a favor please tell a friend about the show in person with a text or by sharing about it on social media you can join us on instagram twitter facebook and pinterest all at whiskey bench pod And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty.